Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. And I hope you enjoy this new show, whether you're viewing it on the internet or listening to a podcast version of the episode. I do want to thank you for being part of my audience. You can also find links to videos or podcasts on MiamiGhostChronicles.com as well as where you can submit your story about any eerie experiences you've had which I would love to hear about. Just go to the Submit Your Story tab. Please subscribe to our channel so that you receive notification of when we release a new show. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is where I usually live stream and where I give you a behind-the-scenes look at locations where new episodes are being filmed at. I also tell you about all the interesting guests that will be appearing soon on Stories of the Supernatural. I hope you enjoy the show, and I think you are all wonderful. The following is a true crime story that took many years not only to discover that it had occurred, but also to discover who the perpetrator is. The year was 1999, almost 20 years ago. The setting was New York City, and one day, a homicide detective gets a phone call. And the call is from a homeowner who believes that they have found a dead body at their home. And the police is perplexed because they can't understand why the homeowner is not really sure if they found a dead body. So, of course, they dispatch a homicide detective to go out there and find out exactly what it is that this homeowner is claiming that they found in their home. And as you will see, despite the length of time that had passed between when the crime had been perpetrated and the discovery in 1999, within 10 days, they had identified not only the victim, but who most likely was the murderer. Now, when the police arrived at the scene in front of this home, which, by the way, was a nice residential area, the police detective that's been assigned finds a big black barrel out in front of this nice suburban home. It was one of those 55-gallon drums, uh, the ones that you see a lot of businesses used to hold certain liquids, but you're going to see that it had more than just liquid in there. The police detective starts by talking to the homeowner who was the one that called him and this person, this man tells him, I'm selling my house. And he tells him on the previous day, he, the new owner, in other words, the person that was buying the property wanted to do one final walkthrough and he went through every nook and cranny. Now the buyer of this house in his last ultimate walkthrough goes and crawls under an extension that was added to the home uh, just to make sure before the closing of the house and this is where he found that large 55 gallon drum which uh, in all actuality the present owner had no idea that it was there or what was in it so this buyer tells 
the seller, the present owner, hey, you've got this big barrel back there in the corner behind some stairs. And you know what? I, I want you to get it out of here before we complete the sale. That I want that out of here. So between the two of them, they pull it on out and they roll it out and they stand it up on the street, which is where it was when the police arrived. The owner of the house is thinking, let me pry open the top, empty it out, and so I can have the trash haul it away. But of course, this man, what he wants to do is finish completing the sale of his house. And it was once they opened it and looked inside, that's when they called the police. And when the detectives get there, he brings them over to the barrel and he opens, it had been sealed, he unseals it and they peer in. The first clue that the detectives got was exactly what the owner of the house got, which was the overpowering, horrible stench that came out of the barrel once they had pried it open. The police detectives, who both deal in homicide cases, immediately identify the smell as the odor of a decomposing corpse. The first thing that the detectives see when they open it, when they look down, was they see what appears to be a human hand, a curled human hand, which of course it makes sense that this is that they're right. This is where that awful smell is coming from. At this point, as the police are looking in there, they find that it's full of this very thick green liquid. And at that point, they're not sure, are we looking at body parts? Are we looking at a complete potty? Because all they can see at that point is what's coming up from the very top of that liquid, which was the hand. The remains, or in other words, what was in that barrel was immediately sent over to have an autopsy done. And one of the challenges that they found was that while that barrel had been sealed, whatever was in there was basically in an airtight, preserved state. But as soon as they had opened that barrel, whatever was in there started to decompose really quick. So they had to immediately go ahead and do the autopsy, hoping that they could get information as to who it was and what happened to this person. Now, one of the first things that they identify is that that green yucky fluid that was in the barrel was not something excreted by the putrefying body. More than likely it appeared to be some type of chemical that was originally in that barrel and possibly the body was put in there with that liquid already there. Once the liquid had been removed they found that the body was bent in half obviously to fit it into the barrel. The body had mummified, the skin was like rubber now the first tip that the police get as to when this victim was murdered was because they looked at the clothing. There was clothing in there and it appeared to be dated back to the 1960s. So this is the first clue that the police have as to how long ago this murder had been committed. Now they find uh, after the examination that it appeared that this was a younger woman, long black hair, white, possibly Hispanic female, possibly in her 20s, even though it was very difficult to determine uh, because of the decomposition of the body. But again, this is what they had to go on initially. Another very interesting clue was that they found in her dental work a gold ridge rimmed uh, filling or dental work that was very unusual. And of course, this they're going to use this 
in order to try to identify her. She was also wearing a gold ring with a green stone on it. Now, what also becomes very apparent is the cause of death because her skull has been crushed with what appears to be a blunt force trauma. The medical examiner determines that she was struck about seven to ten times with a hammer. But the most surprising fact that the medical examiner found was that she was pregnant. Uh, she was in the very last stages of her pregnancy, possibly in her eighth or ninth month. So whoever had murdered her absolutely knew that she was pregnant. During the autopsy, they find also some other very interesting clues inside that barrel. One of them was a what appeared to be a four-inch plastic stem of some type. At the very bottom of the barrel, even more importantly, they find what is a pocketbook and which the police, of course, assume belonged to the victim. Inside the pocketbook, the police find a little 3 by 5 address book, which, of course, the pages are all clumped together because it's been floating in this liquid for, what, possibly 30 years. So they are very afraid to open it uh, because they fear that it will then totally disintegrate. The police then turn that notebook or that little address book over to their document personnel in the hopes that they can salvage some type of information out of that book in order that they might be able to find out who this young lady was. While the documents personnel are trying to salvage it, the police go ahead and pull the records of all the owners of that property where the body had been found. At this point, the police are not assuming that the murderer was one of the homeowners. They're going uh, based on that sometimes murderers want to keep their victims as far away from them as possible. So the police are even entertaining the idea that maybe somebody who did the construction of that extension on the home went ahead and took the opportunity to stash that barrel there in order to put distance between themselves and their victim. Now the police find that the second homeowner was the one who had ordered that extension built to the home. Now when the police question this second owner, he tells them, oh no, <clears throat> that extension was already built when I bought the house and I did see the barrel way under the that extension, but I looked heavy and I just didn't want to deal with it. So what he did was, even though he saw it, he just left it exactly where he had found it. He even told the police that he just thought that it was construction waste what was inside of it. Now, this second homeowner tells police that he had bought the house from a gentleman by the name of Howard Elkins. And he also tells police that he's aware that Howard Elkins is the owner of a plastic flower company. It is not lost on police that they found a plastic stem and leaf inside the barrel along with the body. The police are aware that this clue might very well lead to not only the identity of the victim, but the identity of the murderer. The police then go ahead and they take Howard Elkins' name and they run it through the Department of Motor Vehicles and it comes back now to an address in Florida. So they know that they have to go down to Florida to speak to Mr. Elkins about this. 
But despite their hunch that they might be looking at somebody that's very uh, central to the murder case, they know that they need to get as much information as they can about Howard Elkins before they go down there to see him. The next day, another clue comes in. The documents department contacts the police detectives and lets them know that they have found some information. They were actually able to get some information out of the little address book. The documents department personnel tell the detectives that because those pages had absorbed the bodily fluids that had swished around in the barrel, they information what was written on there could not be seen by the naked eye. So they had had to use very high-tech equipment in order to be able to see what was written on there. This is the same type of equipment that's used to detect counterfeit money, uh, fraudulent paperwork. It just is able to scan what cannot be seen with the naked eye. One of the most decipherable entries that they find is a number, possibly a phone number, they're not sure, that's preceded just by the letter A. The police are even wondering that instead of a phone number, it might be an alien resident number since the victim did appear to be Hispanic. The police contacts INS with the information, but because, of course, they're looking for records that are over 30 years old, they kind of tell them, you're going to have to wait on that because we have to access that information because of the length of time that if it is a resident alien number when it was issued. In the meantime, the police, of course, are still going to pursue getting more information about Howard Elkins. They are absolutely convinced that it is now coincidence that he is the owner of a plastic flower company and they find that plastic stem and leaf inside the barrel. The police then look at a big sticker that was on the barrel and it had three initials GAF. A little bit of investigating turns out that this is a chemicals company that's located in New Jersey. When police go out to GAF, they take some of the sample of what they found in the barrel and one of the uh, managers identifies it as a polyethylene pellet, which is used uh, in the injection dive for some of the plastic molds for flowers. The chemical company also recognize the barrel when they're shown a picture of it and they go ahead and confirm that this barrel or that chemical was issued back in the 60s and that there had only been one company back then who was buying that particular type of chemical in that type of barrel. And it's confirmed later by police when they do investigations that the name of that plastic company owned by Mr. Elkins, which was called Melrose Plastics was indeed the one that was being supplied with that particular chemical. Police verified that he was a partner uh, with another man in the uh, in Melrose Plastics, but subsequently it had been closed down and he had moved off to Florida with his uh, wife and his children. The police also verified that the man that Mr. Elkins was partnered with in that company had also moved to the east coast of Florida. So by this time the police uh, know that they're ready to pay both of them, especially Mr. Elkins, a visit. The police first visit the partner in Florida and they're hoping of course that he's going to be cooperative and when they speak to him he tells them that he hasn't seen Howard Elkin in years but that he's willing to cooperate and help him in any way that he can. 
The police then show him a photo of the barrel and he immediately identifies it as, yeah, we had, we used chemical that was stored in that type of barrel at the company. The man then relates a very interesting story to the police. As a matter of fact, a crucial story. He tells the police detectives that he remembers back in the 1960s, one day he gets a phone call over at Melrose Plastics, just so happens that Howard Elkins is not in that day. And it turns out it's a landlord of an apartment. And he tells partner, hey, tell Howard to come and pick up the furniture out of his girlfriend's apartment because she's not living here anymore. She hasn't come back. He needs to come over here and pick everything up that was left behind. The landlord, of course, is not looking at it from an angle of something happened to his tenant. All he's thinking about is, I want to rent this place out again, and I can't do it when it's full of furnishings and clothing and things belonging to somebody else. The police then ask him, of course, if he was aware if Howard had a girlfriend. He says, well, he's not sure, but he had thought that there was something going on between Howard and one of the girls that worked there. She's very pretty young Hispanic girl with long black hair and uh, something very unusual was that she had these gold teeth which of course the police immediately realize that they are on the verge of finding out who is the victim that was stuffed in that barrel. He also tells police that this was around the year maybe 1966 to 1967 and then he says what was really unusual is that one day she up and disappears never to be seen again. And he thought it was a little bit odd at that time, but of course, he just never pursued it. Of course, not thinking that anything had happened to her as in that she had been murdered. Little doubt is left in these detectives' mind that the perpetrator of the crime was Howard Elkins. They're thinking here is this guy, owns a company, is married, has children, appears to be having an affair with one of his workers, and she was pregnant well-advanced pregnant. Right there, they know that they're looking at a motive for killing her. The police, of course, their next destination is Howard Elkins' house. And, you know, when they get there, they, you know, they identify themselves as Nassau County Police and that they're investigating a murder that was uh, tied into a, a home that he used to own. So he invites them in. And one of the first things they show him is a picture of the barrel which of course the partner had immediately identified, but he tells police the contrary, that no, he doesn't recognize the barrel. The police of course know at this point he's lying, but they go on and they ask him if he'd had an affair with anybody and they are very surprised when he says, yes, I have. And he tells them about an affair, what he called a very short affair. And that, yeah, that it was one of the girls that used to work there at the factory and that one day she just up and left and that was the end of the affair. The police at this point are just trying to see how far he's going to go in lying. So they ask him if he was aware if she was pregnant at the time that she left and he tells them, no, not at all. The surprising thing is that despite having had an affair plus that she worked there, he couldn't remember her name. He couldn't remember what she looked like. It was almost like smoke. All that he could think of or basically admit to was that he had been involved with her in a short romantic affair and that she had just from one day to the next and without any word just disappeared. 
towards the end of that conversation, the police finally come clean and they tell them, we're not here by accident. We're here because there was a body of a pregnant woman found inside that barrel that was stored under a crawl space in a home you used to own uh, with a barrel and chemicals that were used at a factory that you used to own. And at this point, what's going to happen is we uh, we can match, you know, a swab from the inside of your cheek to that fetus and prove if you were the father of that child or not. Turns out Howard Elkins is one cool customer. So he tells police after they tell him, hey, if there's no match between your DNA and the fetus, that's it. You're off the hook. He says, well, you know what? I watch a lot of television. I know you guys can get away with a lot from uh, just taking uh, a sample and so at this point I just refuse to give you a sample and I just want you guys to leave. However, before the officers can leave, the phone rings. It turns out it's Howard Elkin's wife who's telling him that she is on her way home and that she'll be there in a few minutes. Also, at this point, Elkins turns around and tells the police, you know, you have to leave before my wife gets here. One of the detectives knows that they don't have a warrant and they they don't have any arrest powers and but he does tell Howard Elkins before he leaves is if you don't give me that DNA sample voluntarily I am going to get a warrant again and if that matches that dead baby inside of this murdered girl you're going to be arrested for her murder and for the murder of the child the following day the uh, the policemen are talking to their attorney generals in their jurisdiction trying to get a warrant so that they can actually arrest him but because it was a certain date that was a jewish holiday this basically put the investigation and hold at least 24 hours before they could get any type of warrant the two detectives then call their department just to give them an update of what's going on and that they're kind of in a holding pattern and one of the detectives there asks him do you have howard elkins and they both answer no we don't and he said well west palm beach sheriff's office just called up here trying to find out if you had howard elkins because at this point they can't find him turns out mrs elkins had reported her husband missing and of course the local police had immediately tried to find him and they became aware of what was going on as far as the investigation with the nassau county police department Learning this information, the two detectives take take off and go over to the uh, sheriff's department. And as they're getting there, one of their detectives comes out and says, don't worry, we found him. And it turns out that earlier that day, Howard Elkins had gone to a local Walmart and purchased a 12-gauge shotgun. Turns out he had gone to a neighbor's house, went to their garage, went into the backseat of the neighbor's vehicle and uh, committed suicide with a shotgun. The police detectives feel kind of cheated because, in truth, what they wanted to do was arrest and bring Howard Elkins to trial and get him convicted for the murder of this girl. However, what their next task was to verify if indeed he was the father of the child that she had been carrying. However, before the police get information as far as DNA, when they go back to New York, they find that the INS information that requested has come back and they are finally able to identify who that number belonged to. 
and her name was Reina Angelica Marroquin. She was born in 1941. She was a Salvadoran woman, and she had immigrated to the United States and has subsequently been working at the Melrose Plastic Company. Despite having uncovered now her identity, the police still know that they need more information as to what had happened in that time prior. She had arrived in the United States in 1966. What had happened that had led to her death? And within a few days, they were contacted by the document uh, department for the police, and they tell the police officers that they had retrieved some phone numbers out of the little book. The detectives then take those phone numbers and start calling them. And of course, these are phone numbers that date back to the 1960s. So all of their efforts, all they, they get are disconnected numbers. None of the numbers work until they dial one number. And it's actually answered by a lady. And they ask her, where does this phone answer at? And she tells them, it's the garment district. And I've had this phone number for 40 years. The lady identifies herself as Kathy Andrade. And the officers decide that they need to speak to her in person. So the next day, they go out to see her. And one of the first things they do after they introduce themselves is they show her a picture of the victim. Of course, not, you know, when she was in a barrel, but one of the pictures that was uh you know, possible through INS, and she immediately dissolves into tears. She tells the police that this had been a good friend of hers. She even gives them her middle name, which was Angelica. And she tells, she what she does is, with her story, she answers all the questions they had, and it starts off, she says, in November of 1968. She tells the officers that she would speak to her almost every single day and one day she tells Kathy that she's pregnant and that she's pregnant by her boss uh, at the plastic flower uh, plastic flower factory where she works at and but that she's not worried because he's told her that he's going to take care of her she tells Kathy he's gonna marry me He's even set me up in an apartment in Hoboken, and he's going to be a father to our child. Later on, Kathy describes how one day she gets a phone call from Raina, who's crying, and she asks her, what happened? She says, oh, I've done something terrible. And Kathy Andrade says, what did you do? And she tells her, I did something terrible. I called my boss's wife, and I told her, I told her that I was pregnant with his child. And now my boyfriend slash boss has told me he's going to kill me. I need you to come over to where I'm at because I'm really scared. Kathy then tells the officers, you know, the detectives, uh, that when she arrives at the apartment, she finds that the front door is par partially ajar. And when she goes in, the dining room table is set for two. And the food is still warm. So Kathy says she sees this and she's thinking that Angelica's going to be back any moment. So she waits there several hours at the apartment, but Angelica never comes back. Kathy Andrade, after all these hours of waiting, 
goes back to New York, but she calls every day. However, the phone is never answered by Angelica. After a week or so of calling, she just stopped calling and imagined that at some point if something happened, Angelica would call her. She was very distressed when she tells the officers, the detectives, that now she realizes that very likely that day that she went to the apartment was the day that Angelica was murdered. And of course, now what she wonders is, was there something else she could have done at that moment? Eventually, the detectives get the icing on the cake of their investigation when the DNA shows that there was a 99% chance that Howard Elkin was the father of the fetus inside the victim. The only satisfaction that the police said that they had after everything was that when Howard Elkins decided to take his life, he knew that he had been caught for that crime that he had committed uh, back in Jericho, New York, where he, you know he had left his mistress stuffed into a barrel along with his unborn child. After the fact, the investigators came up with a theory where they believed that Elkins either went to Americans to Reina's New Jersey apartment or he lured her to the factory and then killed her and then he took her body to his Nassau County house possibly with the intention of dumping her in the ocean from his boat but probably after he filled the barrel with plastic pellets to make sure that it would sink he found it was too heavy to move and what he did was he just left it in the crawl space uh, and a writer by the name of Oscar Corral went to San Martin, San Salvador, where Angelica originally came from. Well, Reina Angelica originally came from. And there he found that her mother, aged 95 years old, was still alive. Uh, she said, well, she told Oscar that she had dreamt about Reina being trapped inside a barrel. And uh, subsequently, uh, Reina's remains were returned to El Salvador, and she was buried there. Her mother died a month later and is buried alongside her.